Hi, and welcome to the Get Known Podcast. I'm Steve Lee. For those of you who are new to Get Known, we interview journalists about their work and what they cover so companies can know better how to engage with the press and get their company covered in the media. Our big goal is to make sure that companies who are out there reaching out to the press build the right relationships, pitch the right ideas, and understand better what wastes journalists' time and what wastes their time. In this episode, we had the pleasure of talking to Maddie Savage, a Stockholm-based reporter, broadcaster, and audio producer originally from the UK. She has been storytelling for the BBC for two decades, both as a staff journalist and as a freelance foreign correspondent. If her name sounds familiar, you've probably heard of or seen her not only on the BBC, but many other places like NPR, Times Radio, Telegraph, Monocle, Lonely Planet, Huffington Post, and ABC Australia. Now, myself as a consumer of all kinds of media, sometimes it's easy to forget that in addition to telling great stories for our benefit, journalists are making a living from this work, which is full of pressures and deadlines. As a freelance journalist, Maddie shared the pros and cons of basically working as an entrepreneur with lots of different publisher clients while still pursuing her own topical passions through documentaries and other forms of media. It's a real balancing act and it requires, you know, the freedom to be creative, follow the stories you believe in that are important, while at the same time keeping to the practical needs and desires of the publisher. Maddie really helped me understand even more of the inner workings of the complicated production of news. There's lots of teamwork, but also lots of competition within each publisher for stories and budget. We also talked about the advantages and challenges of life as a foreign correspondent. So, not to waste any more time, let's jump right into the interview with Maddie Savage. Enjoy. So, my name's Maddie Savage. I'm a broadcast journalist. I work across audio, video, and text. I've been working for the BBC in various guises for 20 years, which feels really scary to say. It's 20 years in 2023. Um, I started out as a BBC News trainee. I was sponsored to do a postgraduate journalism course at Cardiff University. And I've been based in Stockholm for the past eight years. I actually quit the BBC to move here to work for a job at the local Sweden, which is the biggest English language news site in the region. And then I went freelance two years after that. But the BBC is still my biggest client. And I've also reported for media, including NPR, um, Monocle Magazine and Monocle Radio, Times Radio, which is um, an offshoot of the Times newspaper in the UK that sprung up in the past couple of years, uh, Business Insider, Lonely Planet, um, the Daily Telegraph, a whole bunch of different um, media. And so my broad beat is anything in Sweden and even broader than that, anything in the Nordics. But the topics that I'm really passionate about are innovation, well-being, sustainability, and also social issues around equity and equality. So what exactly happened that made you want to move to Sweden? So I will try and give the short version of the story. In 2006, I was a young 24-year-old reporter working for a part of the BBC called Newsbeat, um, which is news geared towards young audiences. So it's a music station that has 15-minute 
um, audio programs and now a fantastic, huge social media presence as well. And it was the 2006 World Cup and Sweden uh, was, um, was in the World Cup. England was in the World Cup and England was being managed by a Swedish manager, Sven Juren Eriksson. Ah. So there was kind of a staff competition of, okay, someone gets to go to Sweden to find out more about this guy, where he's from, maybe do a piece on the Sweden team as well, but we need you to come up with some other stories. So I pitched in some stories. One was about biopowered cars at Saab, um, which at that point was, was doing very well over on Sweden's West Coast. Uh, and one was about Snus, um, which Nordic listeners will know about, but others might not. And it's this little pouch of tobacco that you put underneath your, um, your lip. And this was just before the smoking ban was due to come in in the UK. So there was some discussion about, well, maybe this could be an innovation that we could have here. And I think the third story, which actually never made it to air, was something about sexual health in the Nordics. But anyway, I kind of won this internal competition and I went off there and I remember, I mean, I do look young for my age. I looked about 12 then. I was there in my bomber jacket and my trainers and my microphone interviewing these leading footballers and this top boss at Saab who I think thought he was getting someone from, oh, it's the BBC, you know, maybe it's top gear. And it was this, you know, <laughs> 155 centimetre tall um, young reporter. But basically my love for the Nordics came from that trip. I went to this place called Torsby. It was absolutely stunning. Lakes, pine forests, people really friendly. They spoke amazing English. I spent some time in Gothenburg as well and then Stockholm. And after that, I came back and just started pitching more and more stories from the Nordics. Um, it took quite a long time before I actually took the decision to, to move to Scandinavia. And there's a whole bunch of bits of my career in between, I worked in UK news, I worked in children's news, I worked as a presenter on the BBC World Service. But I always had this thing inside me that I wanted to live abroad. And I applied for a lot of foreign correspondent jobs, kept coming second. And then I had this kind of sliding doors moment where I applied for a job as the BBC's reporter in Seoul. And I saw this job as editor of the local Sweden in Stockholm. And I went for both and I got both jobs. And I kind of had to choose between this foreign correspondent lifestyle that I'd been kind of thinking about for a really long time versus a job in a country where I thought, well, actually, if this goes well, I could end up staying here. And mm -hmm. maybe that's more what I want to do rather than go on an attachment somewhere and then bounce around different countries, which is what a lot of foreign correspondents often end up doing. So I took the job. Um, it was an amazing introduction. I'm really grateful to the people that hired me. They helped me um, with Swedish lessons. I, I, I really improved my understanding of, of digital media and social media. Um, but ultimately, I really missed getting out and about and interviewing people and digging a bit deeper. And that's the main reason why I went freelance, to be able to get out of the office and actually go out and make creative radio and video again. It just sounds like you have such a passion for for actually the journalism itself. There's a lot of people who look to go to management or become an editor or doing different types of things. It sounds like your real passion is out there getting out there and talking to the people in and feeling getting getting that deeper story. What is it that 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 drives that for you? Like why what is the challenge that you see in it? I mean, it's definitely an interesting point in my career where, you know, the last eight years since I've been in Sweden, things have gone really quickly. Um, time's gone really quickly. And obviously we had the pandemic in the middle of that. But yeah, I'm looking at 
peers of mine from the BBC who are now, you know, senior executives. And there's a bit of me that's like, oh, I'm still going around being a reporter. But I absolutely love the creativity in it. I love finding the stories. I love interviewing real people and hearing their voices. And particularly, you know, I, I also sometimes think, oh, maybe when I run out of stories, I'll, I'll go into management or I'll go into PR. I never seem to run out of stories in the Nordics. It's always really interesting. And I think the other thing that is really nice at this point in my career is that I have done a lot of work that I'm really proud of and that's made an impact. And so I'm also getting people pitching to me, not just PR companies, but people within other media. Oh, Maddie's over there. She, she could do something about sustainability for us or actually, you know, our person in Finland or Denmark isn't available. We'll send Maddie. And so I've actually had quite a lot of cool opportunities coming my way. Um, so we'll see what happens in, in the future. I definitely miss some of the teamwork and camaraderie of being in an office all the time. Um, but I find other ways of having that in my life. So I work in a co-working space um, with other um, people who work for all different companies. I'm in a big running community. Um, I have a lot of really nice neighbors. You know, I've, I've really worked hard to build a community here so that I get that kind of social interaction. And actually, ironically, quite a lot of stories as well from having, from being part of the community. Do you feel like as a, as a foreigner who lives in Sweden, that there's something special about that with regards to your reporting? Do you, do you get or see things differently than other people do? I think there's an element of an outsider on the inside. So, you know, I, I understand, especially the UK media, you know, I, I was a full-time staffer for 10 years. I read the UK, UK media every day still. So I kind of understand what they would want as a story, but also living here, I understand the nuances a lot more of the Nordics. I understand a lot more than I did when I moved here. So I think that puts me in quite a unique position now. It's not that long ago since I lived in the UK, um, but I also um, kind of, in some ways, I was still a newcomer here. I mean, you know, eight years is nothing when, you know, when, when compared to a lifetime. So I think it does put me in a unique perspective. Um, now I think I have a lot more knowledge and, and nuance uh, when I, you know, with, with my reporting. But I also try and always take a step back and think, well, you know, how would this sound to, you know, a parent or a kid in another country? Um, so I think the danger of some people that end up staying in one patch for ages is you start assuming other people know what you know. Um, so I always try and think, you know, how does this sound to, to somebody that's never been to the Nordics? But also, does it sound smart and is it offering something new or a different perspective or a different twist to people who are based here? even to the extent where I'm, I'm making a documentary at the moment and um, I do most of the mixing and editing myself, but there's a real whiz who works on the final mix uh, who doesn't speak Swedish, she's based in the UK. And, um, you know, the little bit of sound that they picked up um, as a sort of introductory bit of sound to a, to a contributor, I was like, well, you can't use that. That's me in really bad, like, grammar, <laughs> uh, with using quite bad grammar, just checking how you pronounce this guy's name. No, no, we, we need to use the bit where he shows me where the, the handle on the car is and we, we jump in and we have a little chat in Swedish because I also want the Swedish listeners to uh -huh. hear that I'm having an interaction, to understand that I know the language and to show that that interaction was kind of relevant to the story. Um, as you we're know, going on a journey in this car rather than just a 
rather than just a random chat about um, your name and the weather. <laughs> well, and I think I think one of the things that we also have seen is, and one of the things that's very difficult for people to understand is that humanity. When you're when you're actually doing reporting, to bring that humanity out is the life of the story in a way. It's you know you can report the facts all day long. But then, but then having that humanity is quite important. I'm just wondering, um, are you always, maybe, maybe it can come in this way. When you go off and do this as a freelancer now, uh, how, how is it different from when you were working for the BBC and, and having to pitch to editors and, you know, because you said you had to go through that pitching process before and everything. How is that different now? that you're a freelancer? Well, I mean, I still have to go through pitching processes. So my work comes from a different variety of different angles. Um, often I am pitching idea to editors. Sometimes that's an idea that a company, a startup, a, a political representative has pitched to me. Then I have to then pitch that in as a freelancer competing with all the staffers who are trying to get their stories on air. So you know, that's a big process. But like I said, sometimes other stories come to me from people at media around the world who, who think I could do a good job working on a, on, a, on a particular story. I'd say by being freelance, I have a lot more freedom over how I manage my time. Um, sometimes that probably means I end up putting a lot more time into stories than I might if I was a staffer. Mm -hmm. I mean, the documentary I've just been working on, um, which, when does this podcast come out, by the way? We are um, probably going to go out in maybe around February, I think. Okay. So my documentary will be out by then. Um, so I'll just rephrase that. So the latest documentary that I've been working on, um, which is about green industry in northern Sweden and some of the conflicts with local indigenous uh, Sami people, mm -hmm. that has been a, a labor of love, you know, for six months. Um, a researcher worked on the project and that didn't quite pan out. And so then I had to go back to basics, find all the research, find all the right people, you know, establish rapport with a community that I wasn't part of. And so, you know, hour by hour, I am not getting a good rate for that assignment. But the joy of being freelance is that, you know, I can do other things. I work um, also hosting a lot of media and tech events, which mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, a business strategy to, to give me an injection of money in um, an area that I'm, I'm good at, you know, hosting live panel discussions. That's just like hosting a live radio show. Um, mm -hmm. And then kind of being able to have a bit more time to work on the stories that I'm really passionate about. So I also have the opportunity to say no to some assignments because I think, well, that's not super interesting or that's something I've done before. So there's a lot of freedom, but there's a, also a lot of stress that comes with it. And I think I am quite unique in some ways in how I've managed to to build that business because I don't have a contract with any major um, UK media, even though I do a lot of work for the BBC. Um, and so that does give me a bit more flexibility, whereas stringers um, are kind of required to come up with a certain number of stories a week and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different business model. And I would say, yeah, it's, it's sometimes very easy to put my heart and soul into projects and, and spend a bit longer on Sometimes I, something I need to be a bit better at is saying, okay, you've been paid for five days. This has to only <laughs> take five days, Maddie. <laughs> so, so, you know, you said something there that I think people would be interested in, and that is like, maybe you could tell a little bit what a stringer is. Yeah. So 
I mean, a stringer is essentially a journalist that's um, that's based in a place where they're sometimes they're not from there. So typically, it's been kind of foreign correspondents that have set themselves up somewhere as a freelancer. But it could also be someone that's that's grown up in, say, Stockholm or, or Gothenburg, and they freelance for different uh, media, usually in other countries. Um, I mean, it's something I would have loved to have done 10, 15 years ago, but I wasn't in a privileged enough position to do that. You know, I know of people who left uni and just kind of started themselves out doing that kind of thing. Um, I didn't have the income to, to be able to do that. I didn't have a nest egg of money. I needed to leave uni and go straight into work. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I didn't leave the BBC earlier. And, um, you know, I was discouraged by some of my colleagues who kind of said, you know, you've got this, you've got this staff job here and, you know, you're presenting now, you know, hold out, you'll get that foreign correspondent position eventually. But, um, you know, they maybe didn't quite grasp the depth of my passion for this, for this region. Um, so yeah, being a stringer can be, can be really exciting. And the thing I like about being a stringer in this patch is, you know, I have, I did work a lot more in breaking news when I was based in the UK and I still get a buzz out of that, mm -hmm. but it doesn't happen all the time here, which means it gives me the freedom to be working on documentaries, to be working on features. And then, you know, if all of a sudden there is a terror attack or, um, I don't know, a a big breaking news line from Greta Thunberg or an election, then I can drop everything um, and um, sort of go back into news mode. And I still do enjoy doing that, but um, it's not something that I would personally want to be doing every day, um, which you would get if you were a stringer in, I don't know, Lebanon or Paris or somewhere where, you know, um, the UK media is a bit more interested in the day-to-day -day nuances. I guess it is, it is nice to have the variety of being able to do so many different things. I'm like also wondering, is it, is it, does it make it, you know, I guess it puts a little bit of, it's a little bit harder to do things that way. I mean, you're not so sure about the income coming in. I think people sometimes don't realize that, that being a reporter has, you know, that you're kind of like on the edge constantly, but I, maybe you like that too. I wouldn't say I'm on, I'm on the edge. I'd say I've worked really hard to build a good business here, mm -hmm. which has these different arms of um, mostly focusing on the journalism that I'm passionate about, but then putting a chunk of time on events um, or on, um, you know, a, a couple of other projects that, 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 that bring in income. Um, and I have had some regular clients. So for about two years, I had kind of retainer contract with a part of the BBC called BBC Work Life, um, mm. which looks a lot at innovation, work life, social trends. So I started off writing about Nordic um, trends and habits, and then they asked me to look into that from a bit more of a general sense. Um, so I've done that. And I'm also at the moment collaborating with a, a Swedish podcast company, which I can't really talk about. Um, at this moment, but that's also hopefully going to be a kind of 16 hours a week situation. So I think, you know, it's finding other ways to have a bit of stability. And, you know, with the events, I've been really lucky. I've, I've got great rapport with a lot of different organizers and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly invited back, which is really, really amazing. But I mean, 2022 has not been my best year. 2022 wasn't my best year. Um, there were projects, journalism projects that 
I started, that I was having talks with production companies with that, that didn't amount to anything. But it was a year where I was trying to be a bit braver and um, do more of the journalism rather than being afraid and thinking, oh, I have to take every job that comes my way in order to make sure I can, I can pay the bills. So it is a bit of a juggling act, but I really think it's important for freelance journalists to be transparent about where their income comes from. I don't work for PR companies. I don't do um, uh, kind of uh, social media content writing or anything like that, but I know a lot of people that do. And my side hustle is these events where I feel I'm being an authentic, balanced journalist on the stage. Um, but, you know, the, day, the daily rate from UK media if you're living in an expensive region like Scandinavia, it, it doesn't go far. It, I'm, and I'm wondering, so so going back to like <clears throat> how journalism maybe itself has changed between well, when you started and how things are now, you know, due to not only due to your move, but just in general, how has journalism in your mind changed the most in that? you know, 20 years you've been doing it? I mean, when I first started out on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to be honest here, hungover 23-year-old, I'd go to the paper shop mid-morning to buy the Sunday papers because I knew I had to know what was going on in the news to talk about it in the morning meeting the next day. And if I got there and some of those papers had sold out, I'd have to go to another shop to find out where they weren't there. Obviously, now we're living in a day of, an age of, you know, digital media, social media, where everything's available. And, you know, that can be quite overwhelming, sifting through that that huge breadth of information. And I think that's why I love the fact that a lot of my best stories in the last few years have come from connections and conversations and experiences. Um, and that makes them more unique. Um, but it's also uh, perhaps a testament to the fact I, I don't spend as much time on social media as I should. But what I think is brilliant about the digitalization... Should we all be spending too much time on social media? Come on. I don't, you don't know. Need, you, don't, you don't need to be spending it. But, of course, it is a great information. It's, but, an, it's important to stay on top of trends. And so, for instance, the only reason I'm on Instagram is really to make sure that I can see what other news companies are doing and, you know, be able to contact people through that platform because so many people use it. I, you know, I don't use it to kind of post glamorous pictures of me on a beach or to feel <laughs> rubbish about looking at someone else posting glamorous picture on a beach. But when it comes to digitalization, what I think is amazing is amazing about it is that it has given us these insights into what people are reading and what people are clicking on. There's mm -hmm. one story I did about um, Natural Cycles, which is an app which you can use um, for fertility and also for tracking your period, it's based here in, in, um, in Sweden and I interviewed the CEO and that story got a million clicks. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of story that 10, 15 years ago, if I was sitting in a newsroom meeting and I need to, I need to pick my words really carefully here because I know the BBC is working really hard on its diversity, but you could mm -hmm. be in a, in a room of sort of male public school guys and you're pitching this story about periods and fertility and, you know, you've got to work really hard to make that argument. Now you can sort of, you can find the stats online about how people are using this app and you can do a story like this one, it gets a million clicks and then there's going to be more interest in maybe similar innovations or, or other stories around that theme. So I think it's brilliant. It's just a great way of, of being able to find out what, what the audience are interested in. 
Um, I, I think that 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 basically what you're saying is that that when you work with, I mean, you on social media primarily not just to see the trends, but to understand what people care about. You know, I mean, trends are one thing, but then you know, getting getting that that connection with folks somehow you have to keep the pulse all the time as a journalist. I think so too. Um, but I also try and do that in other areas of life. I think, you know, journalism is a really intense career. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people in the UK who, who really live in a journalist bubble, you know, they're on the road all the time. They're socializing with their colleagues. Um, you know, there's not a lot of time for, for other stuff. And one of the things I've really taken from the Nordics is, um, a better understanding of what work-life balance means and how it brings value to your life to do other things that aren't work. But also through that, it does mean, I think, that I have a lot of friends and connections with different backgrounds from different ages, working in completely different industries. And um, I think that's been, that's really strengthened who I am as a journalist. And also not being surrounded by other journalists, I'm kind of, I feel a bit more authentic in terms of pursuing the stories that I want to do, not the story that will impress the editor in the morning meeting or the one that I think will get me the next promotion. You know, I'm a bit happy being slightly under the radar and not being, you know, the investigative top story or the big breaking news story. But I know that I've had a fascinating experience, you know, in Northern Sweden meeting tech companies and indigenous people and, you know, being in the nature. And, you know, they are great memories that will sit with me, hopefully when I'm shriveling away in a retirement home, uh, rather than, you know, being stuck in the office, phone bashing or trying to impress the bosses. Do you, do you think that, so I guess you feel like you've sort of become a little more Swedish or a little bit more Nordic yourself. I mean, for sure. And, um, we talked earlier about um, what it means to be a stringer and trying to have that outside in perspective. And I do worry that well, if I, you know, if I stay here forever, I'm going to forget what it's actually like to, to live in the UK. And if you're reporting for UK media, it's really important, I think, to know what is going on there. Because some of the other stories that do well are things that relate to everyone. So, for instance, in the last year, I've done, I've done a piece about... Um, health apps and the boom of health apps in Sweden and with chronic health um, conditions and things like that. And that was actually a story pitched into me by a PR who'd worked in the UK and worked in Sweden um, and told me about one particular example of that, which I then broadened out. And, you know, that was a huge story because in the UK, there are really long waiting lists um, off the back of the pandemic. Another story was about an innovation or a couple of innovations happening in Sweden around different types of covid vaccines potentially like a pill form or a powder form again a, a cool nordic innovation but something that's relevant to everyone um, and particularly relevant during the pandemic so um yeah those are that's slightly going off on a different tangent well but no i mean that's that's nordic, actually really uh, important yeah. That, yeah that's actually really important what i'm wondering is like is that the maybe as you go and get stories what your passion, your, your drive. It doesn't sound like it's about the products themselves. It sounds no. like it's, it's about something more than that. What, what is it for you when someone comes to you with a, you know, cause most PR companies probably represent some particular innovation or some company. 
what 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 is the thing you're looking for when when you actually pitch? What could they learn from you that you're really looking for? I mean, I would say when it comes to 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 PRs talking to me about stories, the most important things are trends and people. So there there are there are some strands of the BBC and other media I've worked for where you can do a profile on a fascinating company or a fascinating CEO, but it needs to fit into a bigger picture. So, you know, not just one company that's doing a cool thing where it offers free clothing repairs, for instance. It's it's like, how does that fit into a, into a bigger theme about repairs in that city or that industry? Um, and again, with people, don't offer me a story about um, a health app if you can't give me an example of someone that's actually used the health app or give me some tools to find those people myself rather than, myself, rather than just saying, oh, no, um, you can only interview our CEO. So those are kind of common mistakes when it comes to PRs. Um, the other thing that always happens is the moment you do a story on one topic, you get an inbox full of people that work for similar companies pitching you the same story. So I think <laughs> a story about Finland building more with wood recently. I made a, a BBC. Exactly. Business I, I read that. I saw that one. I saw and from that, one. that, I'm getting, you know, wood companies and construction companies everywhere. And they haven't done their research because I'm not a, uh, you know, wood technology journalist who works for wood technology magazine that probably doesn't even exist but it's not like that's my day i'm sheet. sure it exists I'm <laughs> and, sure and, it exists. and credit to them because they'll be the most knowledgeable people on that subject and they're the poor journalists that people like me will, will phone up for a bit of a background chat um when researching the story um and by the way people do that to me all the time as well um from other countries you know they'll they'll ring and they kind of feel that they can take two hours of my time uh, and don't realize that, you know, I'm a freelancer and that's two hours I'm not getting paid. So you have to be very cautious about how you how you manage those requests because it's nice to be kind as well. But yeah, mm -hmm. so if I'm getting those, if I'm getting pitches, it's often off the back of doing a story and people want to pitch me something similar. You know, and look at, if you have seen a story of mine and you think, oh, that's interesting. Think about well, what program was it on? Which part of the website was it for or which publication? What might their audience be? What does our company have in common, you know, with that company she's talked about? Do we have an innovative um, product, person, work, culture? And the other thing is, you know, people aren't old school enough these days in terms of picking up the phone. It seems like such a brave thing for people to do. But if someone picks up the phone and makes the effort to talk to me and tell me about their product or their startup space or this interesting thing that they're doing, I'm probably going to remember that way more than um, another email in my inbox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been companies that I've met where I've thought, well, this is a really interesting company, but there isn't really an angle for me or I don't really have time to work on this. But then later I'm doing a story about something completely different parental leave or or time off or remote working during the pandemic and I'll think oh I could I could ask that company to be a case study because mm -hmm. of xyz that I saw when I had that coffee or because that PR person was actually really nice on the phone and um you know you shouldn't be doing stories because PRs are nice but ultimately <laughs> we all Come know on. that there, yeah. there is a relationship between PRs and and journalists and if someone you know there's a few people that live in other parts of Sweden that will make an effort to come and say hi to me when they're in Stockholm. And it means, you know, they're, 
I'm fresh in their minds, they're fresh in my minds. Um, and, you know, um, that happens a lot more, I think, in, in the UK than it does here. But it's, it is a useful part of, of the journalism PR relationship. So, so what is the best way to build a relationship with a journalist? I mean, um, there's a lot of things. So let's look at just yourself. Like, like what would you say is the best way to, you know, start, start a, create a relationship with a journalist like yourself? I mean, it starts with having a good story. Um, because quite honestly, however nice you are and however great the businesses that you're representing, you know, unless it's something that I feel um, is tangible in terms of, like I said, a, a trend or a person or something really innovative, um, then that's not going to cut through. But that doesn't mean you can't pitch again. And that's where it comes to kind of, you know, um, interpersonal skills. And mm-hmm. the thing is, you know, once you've done one story where you've worked well with somebody, then, you know, if they move around to different companies or agencies, then, um, you know, it's easier for your paths to cross again and to have those kind of um, catch ups and, and things like that. Um, yeah. And then you might get another story in the future. I also think, you know, um, any good relationship shouldn't always be about what you can get out and what you can get in. Um, mm. If that makes sense, that wasn't the best sentence, but, you know, um, <laughs> some, some, you know, I get it. Contacts that you can bounce ideas off, um, you know, that you can say, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think about that? And um, that, that relationship can work both ways. I mean, I will say I do have a great story about um, about a PR, which I probably should just give a mention. One of my best friends in Sweden is a PR that I met when I was in London. Okay. So the plays when I was living in the UK, I'm really fascinated by what by Scandinavian stories, and um, I did a story about Sweden opening its um, opening a Twitter account. There was basically an account where a different Swede every week would take over. I've seen that account. I've seen that and then account. They, they close it down now. They actually asked me to, to be um, in, I think, maybe the last quarter of guests. So I was like, wow, I've made it as a, as a Swede now. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we got on well, and she had loads of really good ideas. And then she pitched me another story about um, Swedish food and the kind of Scandinavian food trend that was going on there. And then we kept in touch and mm-hmm. I ended up living in her spare room when I first moved to Stockholm. Oh, and that's now great. she lives out in the countryside and is, is, is managing this amazing um, business with a bit of PR, a bit of running a local store, a bit of horse riding and all sorts of cool and innovative stuff. But that's a relationship now that, um, you know, has developed into, you know, being able to brainstorm ideas or check each other's English or check each other's Swedish. And, and, you know, it's nice to have friends within your industry, but there's always a line where, you know, she knows that she wouldn't just send me a press release and that would mean I, I'd automatically write about it. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you've still got to have those boundaries of being, of being balanced and of doing something because it's a good story. And, you know, those BBC ethics are quite deeply rooted in me, to be honest, where, you know, to some extent, I almost go the other way sometimes and, you know, won't, won't do stories because, um, you know, I want to keep my, my integrity. Um, yeah. I, I think it's actually important though, because I mean, that's where the credibility comes, right? I mean, you don't have credibility if you're just writing about what your friends bring to the table for you. I've seen a lot of journalism in general 
um, even some of these like talk shows and people like that, they just bring on their friends. They don't have alternative points of view. They don't bring other things to the table that, that, that help you actually really trust the media that's there. Um, we've been talking quite a bit with journalists about the trust in media today. Um, what kinds of things, this is a two part question. What kinds of things do you think journalists need to do? to help us get back to a place where, you know, this high level of trust like we have in Scandinavia is one thing. What, what kinds of things do journalists need to do? And then what kinds of things do we as both consumers of media and people pitching to you need to do to bring more trust back into media? Mm. I mean, that's a huge topic, but, um, you know, research and facts are crucial. You know, in an age of, of fake news and disinformation, you know, the more you can do to nail down that that statistic is actually correct, that you have multiple sources, um, whether that's a journalist or, or a PR, um, those things I think are, are really important. Um, and I mean, you know, the week we're recording this is the week of the Harry and Meghan um, documentary going out on Netflix and there's been a huge amount of stuff in the media about um, images in the trailer potentially coming from other sources you know paparazzi looking like they're following them but they were actually somewhere else and I mean that kind of stuff just does so much um, to discredit the media and you know there have been a few scandals at the BBC over the years of um, I think there was one where the, the Queen's was reversed walking in another direction and and things like that. And so, you know, um, I've been taught to be, to be cautious. Um, you know, if you are saying that you're in Sweden, you shouldn't be recording it in your summer house in Spain. I don't have a summer house in Spain. I wish I did, but you know, those <laughs> kind of things for, for credibility, um, are important. Um, as for the bigger picture, I mean, I, I think there's probably people more, um, you know, with, with more, knowledge and, and skills to, to answer those big questions but really it's I do think a lot of it comes comes down to facts and balance I mean we really need to not be afraid to understand the other side of a story um you know I, I got re some really horrible messages from a contact I know that works in PR when I was doing a story a few years ago and I wanted to interview a supporter of the Sweden Democrats mm -hmm. um who um, did really well in the 2022 election. Um, this was the election previous to that. You know, they're a mainstream political party here. They do have neo-Nazi roots. A lot of their policies, although not all of them, are on the far right. And she was laying into me because I put this post out on social media. I think I'd found someone and then they dropped out. So I was having to look within my network for a sort of last-minute replacement person. And, um, you know, why would you be wanting to interview them, blah, blah, blah. Well, I need to because yeah. you have to include balance um, and, you know, we better understand each other if we hear different viewpoints. Um, People so, don't understand that, that we need different points of view. Well, like, I mean, how do you get your audience to like recognize the idea that you do need different points of view? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I've been really struggling here because I'm right now I'm here in the U.S. Okay. And, and I watch the news all the time and it, it makes me crazy because they're just, it's just so unbalanced 
have you ever seen that that thing where they put up multiple channels all on one screen so you can sort of watch three different things and watch what they're all reporting so you can have like yeah. cnn I, and Fox I used to do that and... in the uk i was presenting a room uh, a show i was like the film presenter for this brilliant program called outside source um where we'd be sat in the middle of the newsroom looking at all these screens from all the different networks and kind of um you know you describe what's going on and sometimes when there was a massive story like a you know an earthquake or a military coup you know every every screen goes the same story but other times yeah you're sitting and you're looking and you're like oh well that network's got a panel discussion of the same three white dudes i watched when i was sat in the newsroom you know three weeks ago yeah. and other times you're thinking oh where are they that's really cool can't look at that too much got to focus on my program <laughs> well and it, what's what's also really interesting though is that is that is that the what they want you to focus on like is you know whatever the agenda i'm just wondering whether the uk i see a lot less of it in finland um but but is you know do you do you also have this similar issue in the uk or does the bbc actually drive behavior and and viewing expectation differently I mean, I'm not going to be a spokesperson for an organization that I freelance for. Um, mm -hmm. But what I can say as a, as a freelancer working for UK media is that one challenge is that people in the UK maybe think they know what's going on in Scandinavia, but they're not actually based here. Mm. And so often there is sometimes this like repetition cycle. Um, you know, it happened during the migrant crisis. It happened during COVID. It happened... Um, when there was a, a big spell of gang shootings here, that people are kind of painting. Uh, it, it, there's often quite a polarized picture, I think, nowadays of, of, of different stories going on here. So, you know, during the COVID pandemic, people would be asking me to do interviews and they'd be like, so, you know, um, so, all, so everything's still open there, Maddie. You know, um, tell us about life going on as normal. And and it wasn't normal. Like it was a lot more open than other places, but there were still huge changes to, to people's daily lives here. And, um, but that kind of media reporting got perpetuated because more and more media were, were reporting on how, how open it was and, and people couldn't travel here to see it for themselves. Um, so, you know, that's when I think I, I know I'm a good journalist because I'm able to, I know I'm a good journalist in this patch is what I mean, because I have that understanding of, well, this is what people are saying, but this is what I'm experiencing. And, and I'm not just going to give them what they want. That's sensational. I'm, I'm going to actually explain what's happening here. And, and sometimes that can be a challenge. Like before the election, when I was doing some reporting on, on um, shootings that had happened in various suburbs and, you know, you get a sense that people want you to kind of, um, and I'm not talking about any particular editors here, but um, mm. you know, the media wants the sensational stories and, and they want to think, oh, she's in the most run-down, grotty suburb. But actually, even the most run-down suburbs in Stockholm are way nicer than tons of estates I've been to to report on shootings in the UK. So oh, yeah. um, so you're, you're again, it's, it's trying to understand um, the difference. And I think that's why it's great being a reporter here because often when reporters fly in, they come in with a certain expectation. So if they're uh -huh. expecting a place to be really gritty and it's not as gritty as they thought, oh, maybe my editor wanted gritty. All right, we'll focus on this really gritty corner, you know, without 
the nuance. But at the same time, it's also really hard to then tell these complex stories in in three minutes, uh, and that, which is another reason why I've I've really tried to branch out into more documentaries and longer form programs in the last few years because um, you know I, I like the chance to explain things more in depth. Yeah, and I think that I think that we need more of that because the world is a very complex place. And it just seems that we we would like everything to be siloed into these very small areas, but it's not. But yet, I still think that maybe we need these small, clear, relatable things before we can understand what goes on. Yeah, you know, and like I mean, you there can't is- do these whole concepts and just not cover that one that you have to you have to have something that touches people somehow and the best reporters are the ones that can really tell a story with its nuances in three three minutes and i really value my time working in youth news at radio one newsbeat um and at news around the children's channel uh, both parts of the bbc are focusing on younger audiences because we did have to really distill complex issues um in a creative way and you know a lot of the reporters that I trained with and a lot of people that have been there before and after, I, d- I do think are some of the strongest reporters on the BBC and elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I wanted to change from, from doing bite-sized journalism and I actually find it harder now going back and doing the shorter pieces when I've come off the back of doing a really <laughs> in-depth long project. So I'm trying or to... Or a documentary you know, for that yeah, matter. I mean, yeah, exactly. Boom. That sounds so amazing. I I just like um, well I, I I want to take this last sort of part of time here to kind of ask you about your advice to not just people who are in PR, but actually companies that would these companies that you were just speaking about who you know tell you oh you know hey I've got a wood product too and 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 these kinds of things. What is your you know advice that makes it so that they don't waste your time and 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 they don't waste their own time in in reaching out what's what what would be their your best advice to these different kinds of companies and and individuals i mean be brief and really imagine if you can actually see or hear what you're pitching in the locations where you think you'd like to see it I mean, the number of emails I get about seed funding, like there's pretty much no articles on the BBC website about seed funding or most of the other publications that I freelance for. So much as you'd love to have your company, you know, in, in those sections, it's just not going to be there. And, you know, pitches need to be strong, relatable, like I said, with, with good stats, maybe part of a wider trend and with some interesting people to talk to. Um, I was listening to some of your other podcasts um, talking about um, media training a little bit and how, um, you know, quite often it is, it can be the the experts. I don't want to call them necessarily tech nerds, but it, it can be the people that have built products that are put forward to speak to the media and they're not always great at stripping things back um, and explaining things in tangible terms. So before you even start to go out and explain things to journalists or customers, 
you know, it's about the, you know, the internal branding of the business. Can I explain what this product is in a lift to someone in 30 seconds? You know, can I write a caption on social media that, that explains our company's ethos or attitude to parental leave or the climate or whatever? And, and if people, if you can do that and get that message, then the conversations with journalists are going to be easier. And also the journalists will find your messages and, and read about your companies and kind of, um, and maybe discover them a bit themselves. I mean, yeah, it's still a bit of a needle in a haystack, but you know, I, I know that some of the companies I follow, you know, their, their social media is engaging, their messaging is clear. And there's other founders I've met where they've said, all right, okay, um, all right, let me tell you about our products. So it's kind of a bit complicated, but it sort of works like this. And then eventually we're going to do something like that, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. And it's like, you're not ready to, to pitch that to me. It might, it might be ready to pitch to investors. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that means it's a bad idea or a bad product, but it's, it's got to be tangible. I guess that, that pitching to an investor, and a lot of people get a lot of pitching advice to an investor, but not to media. Uh, do you see the, I mean, I see these things as being quite different from each other, but it's not the same kind of pitch that you, that you have to an investor versus a, um, versus a, you know, a, a journalist. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, why is it relevant? Why would people use this product? What's, what, you know, solutions and problems and solutions, you know, that's, that's a core part, especially when you're talking about startups, you know, people are looking for the problem and they're looking for the solution. Um, and I love doing um, journalism that's around that. But if you just tell me about the solution without the problem, or if it's just a bit vague, and I know it's hard because I feel like I'm being vague when giving this um, as an example as well. But when I've talked about, you know, good journalism, um, when I'm trying to explain something, I'm thinking about, you know, um, my grandma's got dementia now, dementia now, but could I have explained this to her 20 years ago? Or can I explain this to, you know, my friend's kid um, that lives in another country? Or could I explain this to, you know, someone I met me on a train when I'm, you know, traveling in India or Budapest or wherever? So, you know, and then that's a good story where people can read it and, and get it and understand it. So if I need to do that as a journalist, make my job easy and explain it in that way to me when you're coming to me from a company perspective or a PR perspective. Um, so, you know, one of the apps that I mentioned earlier, one of the apps I've reported on um, is an app called Joint Academy, which helps people with chronic, chronic joint pain. I mean, that's not something that's in my realm. I don't do a lot of reporting on, on pensioners. I haven't done anything on chronic pain, but they have good case studies it fitted into a broader trend it was tangibly explained to me there were statistics on what the problem was both in the UK and in the Nordics how many people it affected and then you start to think actually yeah this this is a big problem and 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 here's a solution around that um and also the way that that has been sold to me obviously I'm going to go and double check all figures and make sure that my reports balance but I've got enough to go on that saves me a lot of time. If I get a three-page press release, I might not have the time to read that. Um, mm -hmm. And if the pitch is sort of too short and wishy-washy, like, oh, you should do something about um, sustainable packaging for makeup, that's not enough. I need I need a bit more bone on that. Um, right. So it's about making life easier for me as a journalist, really. And, and 
thinking about how you would feel as someone reading or listening to that story yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you, you bring up uh, so many great points there. Um, I want to end this by asking you, is there ways that you prefer to be contacted or talk to, um, you know, I heard you're on Instagram, other places, what's the best way for people to make those pitches to you and to, um, you know, create that relationship or, or, or get people to know who you are? What's your, what's your thing? I mean, I'm not fussy. Um, I would say a generic email will go unread and anything, any email that suggests that you haven't really bothered to find out um, who I am and what my journalism is about. You know, I get emails from people um, working for brands in the UK, for instance, who are like, oh, would you like to go on this press trip to uh, northern Sweden? And it's like, no, because I don't accept free press trips because I'm an impartial journalist because I already live in Sweden, so I can go there anyway. And so mm -hmm. therefore, you, any email I get like that, even if that journalist has great ideas, sorry, even if that PR has great ideas in future, I'm probably going to remember that they, they hadn't really done their research. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, somebody that pitches something too technical or too niche in terms of, of business. Um, but yeah, I mean, send an email and pick up the phone and badger me a bit. And, you know, you might get lucky because there are a few days where I'm sat at home doing my expenses or looking for great ideas. There's a lot of other times when I am on the road or I'm dealing with a breaking news story or I'm just exhausted and I'm genuinely trying to, you know, give myself that work-life balance time. And that's something that I've really had to force myself to get better at. You know, the whole, the classic thing of, you know, wanting to be nice and wanting people to like you. And it's the same when people, when young journalists get in touch and, and want my advice. Um, you know, I'm trying to help a few people in a better way than giving help to everyone. But that obviously means saying no to some people. Um, but you know, if you were working in PR, you should be thick skinned and you should be used to rejection. So, you know, pester me a bit, um, and, you know, finding a chance to, to connect, you know, um, I will, if people are based in the Nordics, um, I can frankly say I have a co-working space on Sedamalm. It's called the park. You can, um, you can pay for a, for a day to work there, um, or um, I can treat you to a free coffee. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm, I'm happy to meet people people face to face. You're um, being too nice. Come on. But but yeah, you know that's got to be limited. That comes after a, a good pitch, um, and that comes after maybe a good phone call or a really succinct email and something that sort of blows me away. Um, so. Um, yeah, I, I do understand. And I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hard for PRs now where there is a sort of sea information, sea of information, sea of disinformation, you know, just it's, it's hard to cut through and get your message out there. Um, but I think, um, you know, one takeaway just to remember, particularly when pitching to freelancers is that we do have slightly more hoops to jump through to get those pieces online. So sometimes I also have people pitching me stories that I think are brilliant. And um, I probably could get them published if I spent three days contacting everyone I've ever worked for, but I don't have those three days. It's easier for me to do a story where um, 
you know, it's it's more straightforward and I now can get um get paid for it, essentially. So there are unfortunately there are other stories that people have pitched to me that I haven't been able to get through, um, or I haven't had the time to get through. Um so, you know, it's a tough industry, but when you get a great story, a cool case study, something innovative or something shocking, um, you know, it's a great job to see to see your stuff out there in print or to hear it on the airwaves. And I guess, you know, that's why I'm I'm still grafting away and I haven't gone into the into a management job. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Well, hey, uh, Maddie Savage, thank you so much for joining us today. And I really, really appreciate the advice and everything that the all these different companies and, and agencies and other people can learn from just understanding a little bit better how, how media works and how your work is done. So uh, thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. I hope it was useful. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Get Known Podcast. For your enjoyment, we've included a few links to Maddie's work, including her recently released documentary in the show notes. So please have a look. This documentary on the BBC is called Sweden's Green Power Struggle, and it's about the indigenous Sami people who say that carbon cutting technology is actually harming their way of life. It's super interesting and brings a rarely discussed topic to the table. The Get Known Podcast is produced by San Francisco Agency, located in beautiful but dark in November, Helsinki, Finland. I would also like to give a shout out to Crash Video and Audio Production Company here in Helsinki for helping us sound so good. To hear more interviews with journalists and PR professionals, please subscribe to the Get Known Podcast feed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.